0: Before I came to BSSM, I was really burnt out. I actually quit ministry to come here. Struggling with pornography, struggling with my thoughts, just not doing well at all. I thought I was a sinner saved by grace. I thought I would always struggle with the things I was struggling with. Um, I thought I had to struggle with them. I thought I was just working for God instead of with Him. God the Father was pretty scary to me um, because of growing up without a dad. And um, having been on drugs and being delivered from drugs instantly and miraculously, I knew God had power that I wasn't seeing. And I, I didn't have anyone in my life who could actually teach me how to work with God in that way and when I found BSSM I just knew these people can teach me what I need to know. I came here for the miracles. I think the word of God is actually the most important part Um, but here we discover that the word of God is actually a door to encounter God and we actually discover that the word of God is, is also a person not just a book. I think at BSSM, all of our teachers speak from experience. And I know personally most of them won't even share anything until they've had it happen or have it operating in their lives for quite some time. So anything that's shared here is coming from their own life and it has so much power to transform other lives because of that. What makes Bethel School of Ministry special is that we're not just sitting around learning information, we're, we're, we're doing this stuff and it's all about God's presence and encountering God rather than just learning about Him. I think people discover that, that everything they've hoped they could believe about God, all the good things they wish they could believe, here at BSSM is where people tell you that's who He actually is. I guess if, you, if you've had a sense of like, I know I'm better than, than the life that I'm living right now, this is the school for you. Like This is where you actually discover who Jesus made you to be. This is where you actually discover who you are and, and what he's done to you and not just for you. Now I am filled with joy. I am pure. And now... I know I'm a son. My name is Seth, and this is my
1: story. Uh, Help me welcome up Pastor Chris. Yeah, you got it, you got to show it off. That was a great word Eric was giving. There we go. Now you guys can see your questions. Okay. Good day? What is today? It's just Tuesday, huh? Today Tuesday? Yes it is. Oof. Anybody else get so busy the days all run together? Here's a picture of the couple that are getting married after they squeezed hands. Dream is alive. Is there a bunch of people missing today? Christmas. No, it's not Christmas yet. Um Okay. Grab a hand. Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing. Pray, God, that you would just bless this day. Pray that you would increase the revelation in this room. Thank you, Lord, for just the way that you're seeding this place to be like a uh, collective revelation. We just release. um, I just have a picture of the Lord just awakening us. I just pray for the Lord just to awaken us right now. You can let go of hands. I just pray for the Lord would just awaken us. I had this word on Sunday morning in first service. um, I shared it. That we're in an epic shift. I don't know how many of you were there on Sunday morning, but first service, but epic shift, that we were in an epic shift, and I, I... um, and maybe this isn't for everybody, and it's really difficult to give a prophetic word to an entire group of people, 800 people in the room. But I, I, I think that there, we have to anticipate that there's a shift and that the Lord is going from. I, I think the shift is like moving from hearing promises to moving into the promises. Seems to drive me crazy. And so, I, who does, needs to receive that right now should. <laughs> Everybody in the room is like, yes, no, don't give me another prophecy. I want to see one fulfilled in my life, right? <laughs> you get in that mode like, I don't need another prophecy, please. No more prophecies. I'm working on the ones I got already. So, yeah. yeah. So why don't you stand up and let's just pray into the epic shift. Now, uh, we just, we just released this epic shift like... The children of Israel crossing over the Jordan into the Promised Land. No more promises. Receiving prom. No, we want more promises, but we want to receive the promises that we've already been given. We just, we just right now, just receive that right now. That the things that have been promised. Maybe it's your something physically in your body or your mind, or maybe it's like we, you know, your uh, a, a marriage. Uh, maybe it's the restoration of your marriage, the return of your children. Just uh, finances, yeah, that one really. I knew that would do it. That poverty demon comes out pretty easy, but seems to come back pretty easy too. So, Lord, all of these, all of these things, we just pray for epic shifts in our life. Right now, we pray this would be Moses to Joshua. We pray Joshua the, the entering into the, the promises. and every. entering into the things that you've told us. Lord, we just want to prepare ourselves to be receivers of this new season. That we would be singing the new song, we would embrace the new thing that you're doing. Amen. Um, Yeah, can you sit down for a minute? Is anybody facing like intense warfare in your mind? Would you stand for that? Not, not if you want to. You are. <laughs> yeah, I'll take some of that. <laughs> You're, there's a dust or a feather. <laughs> feather. You're experiencing intense warfare. Like it's been intense for probably two weeks. Anybody else facing something like that? A couple weeks of intensity. Like irrational thoughts. Um, I've been facing it for about two weeks. I've been peaceful for like three years. So it's been irrational thoughts, kind of uh, strange ideas, um, especially around God. Yes, if you'd like to stand for that, I'm just going to pray, pray for all of us. Those few people that are sitting probably aren't Christians. <laughs> it's just joking, of course. Holy Spirit, we just pray for protection over the minds of your people. We pray that you would just release to us the mind of Christ, the peace that goes beyond understanding. And Lord, that we wouldn't have to understand to come to peace. That we'd be okay with mystery, as Paul Manwaring spoke on Sunday. That we'd be okay with mystery, that we can embrace the fact that we don't have to know everything to be in peace. It's not who I, It's not what I know that makes me peaceful, it's who I know. And so, Lord, we just release peace. We release peace over every circumstance. We, we break the film that's running. We just, we just say no to that movie that creates tons of anxiety and questions my faith and undermines my walk with Jesus. Lord, we just break that over each individual in here today. We pray that we pray the prayer David said, "The Lord's my the Lord is my light; He's a shield." Lord, we just release the shield of the Lord. I sought the Lord; He answered me, and He delivered me from all my fears. I looked to Him, and I was radiant. I shall never be afraid. Lord, I just release this shield right now. The Lord is the glory, the lifter of my head, and He's a shield all about me. We just release that shield. I mean, I know this isn't biblical, but it's not non biblical. I have to say that now because all these people write terrible things, but I, I see this purple bubble. That I have prophesied over people that there's this purple bubble, and it's kind of like the glory, the lifter of my head, and the, the Lord's shield about me. I say the shield like a purple force field, like kind of looks like an egg that God puts people in, and it's like impervious to biological things like sickness and disease, and it's impervious to bullets and bombs and and uh, things like uh, abductions, rapes, murders. And uh, it's impervious to just, it's like it has its own atmosphere. So I just, I don't know what that is, but I just released this purple bubble. It might be the New Testament hedge that was around Job. We We just released this purple bubble over us. Yes. If anyone's dealing with any kind of deep insecurity, you're afraid your children are going to be kidnapped or something's going to happen to you, just that kind of stuff, make sure you're standing right now. So, Lord, we just release that over every single person who's standing, that you would just capture our thoughts, take them captive, and we just pull down any kind of imagination, any video that's running, anything that would try to take, steal our confidence in you, in Jesus' name. And we receive peace right now. Okay, you can sit down. Say, so I receive that for myself. Somebody, a few people are writing, have you ever been to heaven? No, I have not. Heaven's been in me though, that's good. Yeah, I'm just, why don't we practice interpretation of tongues here at BSSM like we do words of knowledge? I have no idea, probably because I'm leading. I didn't think there's anything wrong with it, it's a great question really. I think, you know, if you, uh, I, I think that when in the Pentecostal settings that I came out of, um, we used to speak in tongues, and then there would always be a, uh, almost always a prophetic word after that, and the connotation was that you spoke in tongues and that you gave the interpretation. And so, uh, it seems like the just the way the Holy Spirit's just used us, because we're, we've been moving in some other realms, as far as like political realm and business realm, and those things don't happen as much as far as uh, tongues and interpretation. And I think in my side, to be totally honest, and I, I'm not at all trying to say that this is the only way it should be or that I am uh, that I actually am... I don't, I don't know there's anything wrong with interpretation and tongues as far as teaching it or anything like that. Like, I actually think it's right. But I, I, I'll just say that I think that I've probably shied away from that because of the realms that we've been training you for. So I've just been thinking about... We're training and equipping with deployment in mind. And so most of the places I go um, and the most is, and lots of the places that I in, in, envision you going are places that, you know, speaking in tongues. I mean, obviously, you talk to somebody who's hungry for God, it isn't going to matter if you stand on your head and, <laughs> and yell or do that,
0: yeah, 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 yeah,
1: thing that happens all the time. <laughs> but most of the places I go are probably like that, yeah, yeah, yeah thing will probably get the security... So, we just never have done it. I, I came up. I grew up with uh, tongues and interpretation, so it 's not that i 've never ministered that way before or, or that i don 't believe in it or that i don 't see it in the Bible. But um, the other thing is i, I don't I've, you know although I see in First Corinthians chapter fourteen about uh, tongues and interpretation, I actually never have never seen in the book of Acts anyone giving a tongue and interpretation in any kind of public place. so there was instruction for it to the Corinthians in First Corinthians twelve and fourteen, but we but we don't see one, um, with the exception of well yes we don't see one evidence that people actually, you know ministered, spoke in tongues and prophesied. Now obviously if you look at Acts chapter two verse seventeen, eighteen, nineteen it's where when the Holy Spirit fell and they were you know all speaking in tongues and they were drunk. I don't think that we would include that as speaking in tongues and prophesying. <laughs> At least not in the way I'm thinking about. So, good question. If you want to practice that, feel free to practice in your groups. It's all good. If you mess it up, then we'll tell you to stop. Um, so, um, the last thing we talked about, do you guys remember? We talked about having a multi-generational vision. And uh, you'll remember that we talked about, I was giving you an illustration of a plain chest, three-dimensional chest. Do you remember that? And we talked about um, having a vision both for those who are with us, those who went before us, and those who come after us. You remember this whole story? And we talked about that what you do today actually, I didn't use this statement you know, uh, last week, but what you t- do today actually echoes in eternity. So it, it's kind of important that you understand that it's not all about you. And it's not all about you all. It's not, about, it's not all about us all as those alive on the planet, that actually God has a multi-generational plan for our lives. And I think that was, I don't know about you, but I felt like there was something profound that day, last uh, last week. I felt like there was something profound happen as we were speaking. I actually felt my own, um, I felt like my capacity actually shifted, and I was actually, there was just things in my life that I had been going through, it actually became clear to me. And I'm like, okay, when I start to understand that God thinks Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in other words, God thinks multidimensionally, in, in my example, of the three-level chessboard, that now my life starts to make sense. And I was thinking about, Solomon said this. He said, um, he said uh, something powerful. You should really read it. It's in the book of Ecclesiastes. and it says, God has put eternity in our hearts without which no one can understand the ways of God from the beginning to the end. I love that. God has put eternity in our heart. Okay, that's good. Without which no one can understand the ways of God from the beginning to the end. In other words, eternity makes sense out of things. Eternity creates justice for people who, you know, you think about little babies who die, or your your dad who died too soon, or your mother who died of cancer. It's like, I don't think God was in any of those things, but, it's, but God's a God of justice. And so, how many understand that if you feel like that's an injustice, then God definitely feels like that's an injustice. And so, it's from eternity that um, things tend to make sense. Um, okay, and then we talked about Habakkuk. I'm just giving you a few minutes of reminder. We're going to finish this teaching today. I feel confident we're going to finish this teaching today. So, in Habakkuk, remember he said, Habakkuk said, Write the vision and inscribe it on ta- tablets that he who reads it may run. For the, vision is, not yet for, the vision is not yet for the appointed time. The vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens towards the goal. It will not fail. And though it tarries, it waits for it. And so we talked about that we're writing for those who are yet to be born. That we're literally, literally writing for those yet to be born. Did you guys read the Heavy Rain book? Or how... How Heaven Evades Earth. Did you guys read that book? Okay, well, you're going to read it? Is that... Oh, you got it today? Did you already get it? Open the front cover. You did not get it? Oh, oh, you just don't want to open the front cover? Here, give me a copy of that for just a second. Throw it to me. Thank you. No, I'm not signing your book. Dedication. It's like page four. I dedicate this book to my children's 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 children. Though we, are not yet, um, though we will not meet until we get to heaven, I want you to know that I had you in mind as I wrote every word of this book. And I continue to hold you in my heart. You will become the answer to my prayers and the fulfillment of my prophecies. By the time you read this book, I will be watching you from heaven. I started thinking, how could I? What could I do that bridges the veil? What could I do that you know well, I'll be gone, watching from heaven, but how can I communicate to to my children's children's children? And I, um, I had an incident. I have a really good friend of mine who is a pastor, who is a pastor, and his. I'll just give you the short story because I want to move on to the finish this uh, teaching day. Um, the short story is his wife had uh, MS. And um, she had it for many years, seven, eight years. She had um, one child. Uh, she ended up got pregnant with a second child, kind of miraculously. Had a second child named and named her Mariah. She was amazing. This amazing woman believed to the end that God was going to heal her. I got a phone call in the middle of the night, and he said, "Hey, her name's Martha. Martha's dying. The doctor says she won't last through the night. She lives on the coast." Kathy and I got in a car. We drove to uh, the hospital there, and she was unconscious, and the doctor said it should just be a few hours before she slips into a coma, and this is kind of the way it goes. And so we're just around her bed praying for her, and she has scriptures. Like every, every, every inch of her wall was promises in her room. And so her husband, named Willie, I said to Willie, Willie, did Martha like... These two little tiny children, did Martha have, like, did she write to her children and let them know, like, how she feels about them? And the vision, did she record anything? Did she, like, do her children have any, like, if they were to lose Martha, if they lose their mama, and you know, I think one was like four and one was like one years old, or I think six and one. I said, you know, would, I said, my dad died when I was three. If my dad would have wrote a letter about how he felt with me about me, I would have that thing framed in crystal and hung on the wall. Like I would love to know what my daddy was thinking about me when I was three. And he said, Well, unfortunately Martha never did that because she didn't want to ever feel she, she didn't want to have a plan B for her sickness. I said, well, if, Martha ever, if, if a miracle happens and Martha happens to not pass, what she needs to do for the next year is every day record what she's thinking about her children. Well, we left there, and the next morning she woke up and lived another year. And she recorded what she was envisioning for her children. There's something about writing to a generation that you'll never see, that causes them to go from walking to running. And so I just I want I want to just end that with that. Like there's something profound. Well, first of all, let me say this: there's something profound about not living for yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's like when people say all the time, like, "What does it mean to take up your cross and follow Jesus?" Well, I don't know. You can have lots of theological ideas about it, and I think they're all the ones I've heard at least are all good. But one thing it means is that you're sacrificing yourself for someone else. Okay. Good point, Chris. Thank you for that. Okay, so I want to just kind of settle on the last three points, and we can do those quickly. They won't take nearly as much time. And that's, first of all, plans. So we did core values. That's what? Come on, help. Who? And then we did mission, which is what? Why? Why? You know, you're going to be bored with this, but you're going to remember it someday when you need it. Envision. OK, now we're doing Now we're doing plans, which is what? How? Okay, so plans. Let me just read you a few verses on plans, and then just make a few comments, and we'll just kind of move past it pretty quickly. Plans are the way in which we apprehend the, the mission. Proverbs 15.22 says, Without consultation, plans are frustrated. But with many counselors, they succeed. Let me give you a few more scriptures. Proverbs 16.1, The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer belongs to the tongue. The answer of the tongue belongs to the Lord. Proverbs 16.9 says, The the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. I want to just make a few comments about plans that I think are pretty... Simple, but they could be profound. The mission in your life, the vision of your life, needs to be from God. We've talked about so much, I don't want to belabor the point. But it'd be a bummer to be successful. Maybe the greatest failure in life is being successful at something you're not called to do. So we've talked so much about it, I don't want to spend 15 minutes making the point. But so the plans, your mission in life, your vision in life, it needs to be the Lord. But it's interesting that there are several scriptures around the fact that plans belong to man. It's almost—it's almost like this is the co-laboring part that you actually get to make a plan. And, and let me just read it to you again. Without consultation, plans are frustrated. With many counselors, they succeed. Proverbs—I'm uh, sorry, yeah, Proverbs 61. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of to the tongue is from the Lord. Proverbs sixteen nine: The man, the mind of man, plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. So I, I I don't know if this is like I don't want to say it's in stone, but I will say that it's the Lord who the Lord gives you the responsibility to create a plan. Yeah. Uh, a, a few simple things about plans is that they're from man, <laughs> and and I, you know if the Lord gives you a plan, take that one too. They're from man, and the second thing is you should have. It says, in the abundance of counselors, there's victory. And uh, uh, again, not to belabor a point, I don't think that we need um, ten people who are all saying the same thing in our abundance of counselors. I guess I'm trying to say this a, a, a point I've probably driven home all year long so far, and that is, when you... In, the idea of abundance of counselors isn't that I find five people who all think my idea is great. The idea of abundance of counselors is that I encircle myself with people who see things differently than I. And again, this is a point that I've made so many times. So we get to the plans part, and I've actually probably preached this part to you already. And that is, surround yourself with people who see differently than you. They have the same core values, they have the same vision, they have the same DNA, they have the same mission, but they see things differently than you do. Um, I love what uh, Winston Churchill said that leaders... Said nobody wants to tell the leader bad news. Winston Churchill said nobody wants to tell the leader bad news. And so in the middle of the, of the war, he actually, when, when uh, he became prime minister, he actually assigned, he actually started an office in which the uh, uh, department of the, of the military... Their full-time job was to tell him the, where the worst battles were taking place, where they were losing. So every day they would feed Churchill the places in, in the battlefield where they were losing. And, and he, in, he, in Churchill's own accounts, he said that that was probably the most important thing, that he most important information he had every day was that report, where they were losing, not where they were winning. You know, we, we have this amazing testimony culture. And by the way, I love this culture. I didn't create this culture of testimony. That's completely from Bill. Everybody on our team would agree that I don't think, I don't think there's even a second. I don't think there's anybody close to creating that culture. I don't think there's a number two. <laughs> I think Bill's so above everybody on our team in the testimony. I don't think there's even a close number two. Bill has lived his life living off of prophecies and testimonies. Like his entire life, since I've known him. And I, I love it. I love that we have a culture of testimony. What is God doing? Not what he's yet to do. But I want to just add this one thing. I don't want to change our culture. You know, when we talked about Ananias and Sapphira. God killed them for lying. And I said to you, that was an exception to a culture of grace. It happened. We have to acknowledge it. But did you notice that the exception didn't create a new culture? And so, you know, there, there, I'm sure there was lots of other people who lied. But as far as we know, it was not recorded that people died for lying. So it was, it was a... I'm, I'm trying to make a point. Like, that didn't change the culture. It was an exception to a culture. I'd like to say that the testimony culture, I would not want to change the culture of testimony. For all of you that are going to try to get something done, you need a testimony culture. Like you need to remember and remind yourself what God has done and not get stuck on what God hasn't done. There needs to be an exception to that rule. That doesn't create a different culture. But if you're going to be in business or you're going to have a great ministry, you do need to know where there's problems. You don't want to be the person that everybody's afraid to tell you the bad news. Um, we have one of our departments that's uh, in trouble financially. We have 84 departments. One of our large departments is in financial trouble. I just appointed a new leader over that, that part of our ministry. Substantial, It's a substantially large financial part of our, our ministry. And uh, so... They've been uh, the leader of that for four or four, five months. And every day I get good news, almost every day. I sat them down, that team down, about a month ago, and I said, I love the good news. Please keep the good news coming. But I need to know where we're not performing well. Because this doesn't create any action points for me. And because our, our business, this business, is losing huge amounts of money, you're not telling me what I need to fix. And so I need you to send me the worst news when you hear it. Now, I can't fix a problem if I don't know I have one. What I'm getting at is this. I don't want to shift the culture of that ministry to like, let's find the bad news. But when I'm in a season, well, I don't even want to say it's a season. I think it's wise, if you're leading an organization, you need to know where your weaknesses are. You know, it's kind of the the SWAT. you know. What are your, uh, I can't even, it's, what is SWAT, S? Strength. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. And it's like, you, you know, I don't want to be the paranoid guy. Like, I, I, I do think that in my nature is to be optimistic, and then I come to Jesus and I find faith. So I do think I'm mostly positive. I think my team would describe me, it, it, compared to my team, I think I would be a realist mostly I'm optimistic, but I am the guy who's asking like, what could go wrong? <laughs> so I just had a really great meeting with one of my team today, and we were together an hour and a half or two hours, and he was laying out this whole plan, and he had this great vision, and, and you know, it's, it's a ministry that's been going now for four years. It's very successful, and he has this new opportunity. So we looked at all the opportunity, and obviously he's a very positive, optimistic, faith-filled guy, and he was telling about all that, and I said to him, Okay, that's awesome. What could go wrong? I need to know what could go wrong. Like, what could go wrong? And so we started talking about what could go wrong. And you know, the what could go wrong is Jesus talking about a man built a tower, didn't calculate the cost, got it half built, and couldn't finish it. That's a great scripture balance for like, what could go wrong? I mean, it doesn't always work perfectly. What could go wrong? And can you deal with what could go wrong? Like, you know, do you have a plan if you get your tower half built and you can't afford to finish it? I mean, what could go wrong? I have a pastor friend who's a great man of God. You probably, I know you would know him, actually. At least you would know of him. And he, um, they actually did that. They built a church. They had this plan to build a church. They raised about um, 20% of the money they started building. And didn't raise anymore. It's been sitting for years. It's a place of, from his perspective, it's a place of failure. I mean, we've had many, him and I have had many conversations about it's, you know, he has a a beautiful building like this, and if you can imagine that, like down where the prayer chapel is, so to get into your property, here's the building that's been probably 10 years now, 20% done, sitting there. So it's a perfect example. It's like, it's great to live in a faith culture, but I think it's important to say, what if something goes wrong? <laughs> this is really uh, a tough conversation in some ways because I know what I'm saying is right. I, I, I'm, not, I'm not nervous about it. I'm just like to be a world-class leader, you have to have confidence. Confidence. Confidence is either the fruit of arrogance or the fruit of faith, depending on why you're confident. (laughs) Right? John Maxwell said, when leaders lack confidence, people lack commitment. So if you're going to act like you're not sure, don't expect people to be following you. People don't like to follow leaders into not sure land. So if you don't know where you're going, at least know who's leading you. You know, I may not know where I'm going, but if someone I'm someone I trust is driving, I don't I don't have a ton of anxiety. But if I don't know who's driving and I don't know where we're going, that creates a ton of anxiety. So there's this there's this balance. You know, did I do the teaching last year? All truth is all truth is held in tension. Did we do that teaching? So this is this is the life application. It's like you need to be full of faith and confident when you're leading something. At the same time, you need to not be overly confident. <laughs> you know, James says, "When you go, don't say we're going to go to a city, we're going to start a business, and we're going we're to make a profit. James says, if the Lord wills. In other words, you can do all that, we talked about it, but the outcome is not necessarily in your hands. Some of the greatest challenge I have is how to be a faith-filled leader and still make sure I don't have a half built tower. I gotta tell you that as the leader in this environment, as one of the leaders in this environment, as the main leader over probably the projects, I'm always concerned about the half built tower. And I actually think I'm supposed to be. I actually think it's part of the tension, the intention, living tensionally, living with intention. I think intention is I totally trust God, I don't want to build a half, I don't want to have a half built tower. How do I motivate people to build a $65 million building and get it half built and not have the money to finish it? I'm in the middle of it right now. We have, you know, $8 million, $9 million put away. We've already spent about $4 or $5 million, so we've got, I don't know, $12 million into a $65 million building project. Something way bigger than we've ever done before. We've sought two consulting companies. They both said... 65 million is twice what you should be building. Wow. We're like, well, this is what we need. And how do we lead with confidence and not have a half-built project? If you come to the people with like, not, I'm not sure this is going to work. I can guarantee you people aren't going to give their money to I'm not sure this is going to work. Would you invest? I wouldn't. Like, am I going to give $100,000 to a project? I'm like, you're not sure if you're going to finish it. Okay. So, so what do you do about that? Well, one thing you do is you surround yourself with an abundance of counselors, because in abundance of counselors, there's victory. And you know, if you're just going to surround yourself, listen, I'm the guy who said the other day, you need to find people who throw uh, gasoline on the fires of your passion and water on the fire of your fears. That same guy is telling you, don't surround yourself with yes people. So, I don't want negative people in my life, but I want the positive guy who has a negative word in my life. I do want the positive guy that goes, Whoa, whoa, I don't feel good about this. If he doesn't feel good about anything, I've had leaders around me for years. They're not like every time, like there's a, I just want to be careful that I don't uncover somebody at the same time uh, you're here to learn. I've had people on my leadership team over the years. That They have faith for healing, they have faith for miracles, but they don't have faith, let's say, for money. And because I've been with them long enough, I know when we're going to do this project or that project, they're going to be like, ah, don't feel good about this. You know, the first few times, I'm like, I'm listening to you, okay? I don't want to build a half-paid-for tower. Talk to me. But then I go, oh, every time we build anything, (laughs) every time we buy anything, every time we go after something, you don't feel good about it. I'm like, okay, your challenge is you don't have faith for projects. And by the way, if you're an administrator, how many of you have an administrative gift? Would you raise your hand? Man, we need administrators to the max. Like, this culture needs administrators. We got lots of visionaries. Without administrators, I don't think you get anything done. But I think administration means add to the mission. (laughs) And one of the things I believe is you don't need administrators that have less faith than the visionaries. Let me just say that again. I've watched administrators take over a God-given mission and turn it into something humans can do without God. I need administrators that have as much faith as the visionaries. I don't need the visionary that feels like they can take over the world. The administrator is Pee Wee Herman. I need administrators that have faith. But I also need administrators that... Have faith. <laughs> I think Kathy'd be okay to me telling you this. She's probably the greatest administrator I've ever worked with. Is Kathy Valentin? I don't say that because she's my wife. I say it because she's brilliant. She has a special gift for it. And I, I've said on many occasions, we would not have a school of ministry. We wouldn't have a school of ministry if it wasn't for Kathy Valentin. The first five years, she organized everything. Everything like we were like, yeah, we should have. You know, it looked like a. When we got done with our plan, it looked like an abstract painting. (laughs) Kind of looks like the moon. The greatest challenge we had the first 30 years of our marriage, we've been married 41, is that, well, Kathy loves details, but there's a time to ask for details. When you're dreaming, you can't have the administrators going, and, and what do you believe that will cost? Where are we going to get the money? No, no, no. I don't need, like right now, I, I need a balloon with a string, but not a chain. And so I, I will be, we'd be in the room like, you know, dreaming, as I think Eric uses the word, ideating, Imagineering. And Kathy is the only admin person on our team. Like, we got this test 15 years ago, and she's the, she, out of all of our, at the time we had 20 senior leaders, out of 20 senior leaders, she was the only one that had any admin in her. Wow. <laughs> I'm like, oh, you chain, you handcuffer. It really helped our whole team. We're like, oh, that's why she asked those stupid questions. Like, how are we going to pay for that? Who's going to do that? And, I would, you know, and we would, like, we'd get home and I'd have these really passionate conversations like, listen, when we're dreaming, dream with us. Do not ask stupid questions like, how are we going to pay for this? Who's going to do it? Are you sure about this? Did God tell you? Listen, talk about it later. <laughs> you know, they're not stupid questions, right? I'm being funny. I'm saying when you're in the middle of dreaming, you're, you need to dream. And, you know, administration means to add to the mission, not take away from the mission. And, you know, what I've watched in Kathy's life in the last 10 years is that she's been so good at dreaming with us, and then when it's all over, asking the really hard questions. Like, okay, so what's sustainability on this project? How are we going to pay for it? Not, can we pay for it? How are we going to pay for it? Because administrators shouldn't be saying, should we do this project? They should be saying, how should we do this project? If we know it's God. Okay. So, you listen, dreamers, the hardest people to have on your team, dreamers, I'm talking about, who are the extreme dreamers? You're extremely dreamy. Okay, the people you don't like, the administration people. The people you need the most, the administration people. Are you with me? So, who are the administration people? Raise your hands, please. Dreamers, look around. You want to be really successful, you need to get one of these people on your team. At least one. Yes. Okay. Hey, um, let me just... I, I never, I'm never. just thinking of it like this. Dream. Okay, follow me for a minute. I've not illustrated this before. This is a dream session. When the the admin people come to the dream session, they dream. I'm saying, create, DTR, DTR, like define the relationship. Okay, we're going to do a dream session, administrators. We're letting you in. Dream or be quiet. Okay, now we have, now we have, get her done. Get her done. (laughs) <laughs> okay, when the, when the dreamers come in to get her done, this is the admin, right? Admin people are getting it done. Otherwise, you just have a pipe dream, right? Got no plan, just got a pipe dream. Okay, when the admin people step in here, be ready. Like, you know, get on your happy face. When people start asking you the hard questions that they're actually helping you to get your project done, and you've never thought of those questions because you don't think like that, that's why you dream, don't get pissed. Angry, angry. Don't get angry. Be patient. Okay. I'm right about this, man. I've been doing this for years. This is Kathy... A little mean face. <laughs> no, i was just being funny. Okay. Admin people, be able to turn the admin off. No, I'm not being funny now. Like, be able to click into. It's okay to dream. And part of the challenge is, I would say, in my marriage, the part of the challenge is that when I dream, it costs money. <laughs> it also costs time. How many of you dreamers, you're not connected to time or money when you're dreaming? Me neither. You know, I could have a full-time job, and I'm like, oh, man, it will be so awesome. We're going to build this university. We're going to do all this stuff. and this will be awesome. She's like, when are you going to sleep? I don't know. It'll work out. I <laughs> think it'll work out. It worked out when I was on the couch for seven months. It worked out. Still here. Most of my mental capacity has been restored. Can you guys see up there with that in the way? Okay. Okay. So plans. So get some folks around you who are different than you, especially gifted people at administration. Listen, you gotta have get-or-done people. You gotta have get-or-done people. Get-or-done people. Let me let me describe a get-or-done person. It sounds crazy, and I'm I'm not bragging about myself. I'm a get done person. If you looked at my... I was looking at one of our leader's phones yesterday. He's a couple of days ago. He has his phone out. And, and on emails, it said 100... No, 111,000. No. 1100. And 27. Not 11,000. 1127 emails he had not answered. If you looked at mine, if I have not emailed to answer, it's because I haven't seen it today. Zero. Text message, everything. I cannot stand unfinished projects. I cannot stand unfinished projects. My house, I can't stand unfinished projects. It's a little OCD. So, but I'm saying get or done people, they have this responsibility thing. If something's not done and it's in their world, just feel like it has to get done. This is my only part in my, not my only part. I think this is the part that you probably wouldn't want to be on my team. Because I I really am a good guy. (laughs) I love people a lot. I'm not very patient. And I'm always saying to my team, when are we getting that done? Like, it's only been a day. I'm like, that's 24 hours. What did you guys do in 24 hours? How are we doing for time? Okay. Uh, Plans. Plans. Plans to make sure. Goals. Goals. I love goals. How many of you set goals for yourself? Okay. Goals. (laughs) Goals is the what? Goals is when. When. In other words, what is a goal? A goal is an accomplishment with a date. Everybody say, accomplishment with a date. If it doesn't have a date, it's not a goal. If it doesn't have a date, it's just a pipe dream. It's not a goal. It's, well, you can have a vision without a date. It's fine. But, dude, you can have a vision without a date. I don't know what I just said. Anyway, uh, Philippians 3.14 says, I press on towards the goal of the prize of the upward call. First 1 Timothy 1, 1.5 The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart. Um, Every world class leader Did I do this to you already? Has this inside of them. Someone tell me what you think I'm drawing. Remember I can't draw. Football field. Football field. Every great leader even in Europe has this inside of them? Um, There should be 10 of those. (laughs) It's just a guess. You know what these are? Okay, first of all, I have to teach you about football. Okay? There's a few ways you can score in football. I'm just going to tell you two of them. The first way is you run across the goal line. Okay? So you run across this goal line, and you get six points for it. We're not going to get complicated here. The second way you can make points in a football game is you can kick the ball through the goal post. You get three points for that. Got me? So the basic part of the game is to score points by either crossing the goal line or kicking the ball through that. Now, there's two other, three other ways you can score too, but for the sake of simplicity. Now, how many understand that if you've... How many have watched football before? How many... Let's do it this way. How many have never watched a football game before? Okay, so let me, let me tell you a little... Shame. Shame. Deep shame. Deep shame. Silence. Okay. I'll tell you just a little bit. I'm sorry. Let's just be patient for some of those lesser beans. If you've never watched a football game, a football game lasts one hour on the field, and it takes three hours to watch. Okay, because an hour it's actually an hour game, but they can call timeouts and there's and there's it just goes on and on. It takes three hours to watch a one hour game. In a three hour game, in a one hour game, if they score more if each team scores more than three times, that is a really high scoring game. Okay? In other words, if they score more than twenty one points each team, it happens, but it's not most games. So you're watching for three hours, a one-hour game. People run up and down the field. Not very exciting, unless you understand football. So if you're listen, you're like, "Are you teaching us football?" No, I'm teaching about life. So the way that football works. So follow me. Is these are supposed to be there's supposed to be ten of these and there's. It's 10 yards. They're 10 yards, and this whole field is 100 yards long. Got me? I understand, but just I have to teach you how, to, how it's played so I can actually tell you why you need to have this. So you get four plays to make 10 yards. So if you go four plays and you get 10 yards, then you get the ball, you get to keep the ball, and you get four more plays to go 10 more yards. Got me? And you get four more plays to get 10 more yards. In other words, you don't have to go 100 yards in one play to win the game. In fact, rarely does that ever happen. So, you go, it's called, it's called playing for a, come on guys, first down. Okay? It's playing for a first down. So, unless you're playing at the end of the game, or halftime, you're not even, the the clock is only important for other minor thing, but, you basically are not fighting the clock, you are playing four downs, to get ten yards. Why is that important? because, when you're watching football, you're not thinking, I hope he gets a field goal on every play. If you're watching the game, you're going, I hope he gets a, come on guys, help me, first down. Because if he gets a first down, he gets to keep the ball. And of course, that keeps your opponent off the field, right? The offense off the field. What I'm getting at is this. There's not very many touchdowns in life. There's not many field goals in life. And if you don't have this inside, you're not a very motivated person. Because there are other things going on besides a touchdown and a field goal in life. There's like, I just got a first down. I'm moving towards the goal, heaven's goal, and I'm doing it little bits at a time. And I took my 100-yard problem, and I broke it down into 10 yards. And I took the 10-yard problem, and I broke it down into four plays. See, if I can break, it's a metaphor, and I know you guys do this well. If I can break life into four plays a day, I can stay encouraged. Are you with me? But if I only count touchdowns as progress. See, here's the problem with visionaries. See, if you're a visionary that has an admin gift, you naturally have this inside of you. This is what makes you really powerful, is that you see the touchdown, but you know when you're making progress. What I find is that most... Well, let me say this. It's my theory that this can be taught. That that's why I'm doing it. That you can actually learn to think like this. But most of the visionaries in this room, I'm not putting you down. I just, I'm one of you. If you don't have someone in your life who thinks like this, this will not come naturally for you. And your moods will go like this. We got a touchdown, we're all celebrating, and now we spend 30 minutes more in the game, if you're following me, no touchdowns. No field goals. I'm discouraged. I don't know what's happening. God's not with me. And I'm like, no, 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 you have to, le- you have to count yards. You have to count first downs. There are other things going on in the game that say we're progressing. Are you following me? And I'm saying, if you want to be a world-class leader, you got to learn to play football inside. you got to say, now this is a part of goals. When I, say, when I talk about setting goals, I'm not talking about just saying we want to win. That's not a goal. Not, let me just say it differently because I'm exaggerating to make a point. Yes, winning is a goal. We can say, if we looked at a, a season, football season, 16 games, we say, yes, we want to win 16 games. That is a goal. We want to win 16 games this year. We have, and we have something to accomplish, and we have an amount of time. That's great. Are you with me? But if I want to win the Super Bowl, I have to do what great coaches do, and that is I have to think one game at a time. So I can't think, we got to win 16 games. I have to think that before the season starts. <laughs> But when the season gets going, I can't think of the game seven when I'm on game one. I have to be able to say, okay, here's my big vision. We want to win the Super Bowl. But I have to break the Super Bowl down into smaller bits. Are you following me? I have to win. Let's say I have to win 12 games to get in the playoffs. So I'm like, we got to win at least 12 games. So so now what am I focused on? Before the day starts, before Sunday starts, I got to win the game. Today, that's a goal. But now when the game starts, I have to break the game into smaller pieces. Are you with me? And if you can follow me all the way down to, I have to break the game all the way down into first downs. I have to break getting into the Super Bowl into making a first down. (laughs) Right now. Today. If we fumbled the ball and the other team got it, I have to break down the plan. The goal just changed. And my goal isn't to make 10 yards. My goal is to stop him from making it. I'm not being silly. I'm saying I'm saying anyone could dream of being in the Super Bowl. If you want to actually be in the Super Bowl, you're going to have to think about first downs. I'm going to have to take this, you know, this big dream of being in the Super Bowl and think, if I'm going to actually get there, I actually have to make first downs. I actually have to take my goal, my big goal of being in the Super Bowl, I have to take it down to, we got to win today's game, and i got to take today's game into, we got to have a first down. Yes. If you can't do that, guys, you're not going to be in the Super Bowl. Are you with me? Yes. So you've got to set goals that are a stretch. And by the way, if you watch football, for those of you who haven't, making, a first, making 10 yards... How many guys watch football? Not easy. Because the goal of the other team is to what? Keep you from making first down. Isn't that like life? I mean, you don't live life in a vacuum. It's like, oh, let's just do this. No, if you're doing it, you have what? Resistance. You need it. Oh, something's wrong. I don't know. I mean, every time I... Take two steps forward. Someone's pushing me back. Yeah, that's called the devil. <laughs> you're making the devil too big. Yeah, well, you're making him disappear. You make the devil disappear, you're not going to understand your life at all. You start blaming God for sickness and evil and all kinds of crazy stuff. Like, be careful. You, you know, the, the devil has some power. You have de- power over all the power of the devil. <laughs> your job is to destroy the works of the Enemy, which means there are some. <laughs> oh my goodness. You people. I'm tired of arguing with you. <laughs> In my head, get it? <laughs> I'm not crazy. So you got to have a football field inside. The second thing is, if you said to your running back, that's the guy that gets the ball, he gets handed the ball, everyone blocks for him, and he's trying to make it. If you said to the running back, Listen, your job is to take this ball and run 100 yards. How many know he's not gonna wanna play for you very long? Because a running back, I mean, if a running back makes four yards, that's considered an extremely good running back. He gets the ball and runs four yards. If he can do that consistently, how many know he's a pretty good running back? Because you have four tries to get 10 yards. If he can run four yards every time, how many know he gets first down every time for you? After three runs, he's got 12 yards. You got me, right? I'm saying, I can't say to my running back, Listen, you're a failure if you don't make 100 yards. I'm saying, if you set goals that are unreasonable for the people who are following you, they won't be on your team. And you set those kind of goals when you don't understand how to break things into small pieces. No one's going to follow you. Not because you don't have a great vision, but because you don't know how to set goals. And you say to people, listen, if we don't get a seven points, you've failed. We're not going to want to be on a team with you. I'm letting it sink in. I'm saying, if you don't have reasonable goals that are a little bit of a stretch, people aren't going to want to be on your team. Are you following me? I think goal setting is the greatest art of management. I think goal setting is the greatest skill of management. If you know how to set goals, you don't have to manage very much. Have I told you about the bus pulling away? We talked about it, right? I'll just retell it because it's it's in the right context now. If I'm a great goal setter, it's like you getting to the bus stop, let's say the bus is supposed to leave at 3, and you get there at 3, three o'clock and 45 seconds. And you get there, and where's the bus? Help me. Bus drivers on time. What's where's the bus? He's gone. How far has he gone? Not very far, 45 seconds. In other words, you've, we've, we've all been there. You get to the bus, and the bus starts to roll. What are you going to do? You're going to run. Hey, 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 open the door. You're going to run, right? Now, picture the same thing. You get to the bus stop three minutes late. Where's the bus? Down the road. Can you see him? Probably. Can you catch him? No way. Is it going to motivate you to run? No. No. If you learn how to set goals, you will create, you will create urgency wow. that keeps your people moving, and you don't have to manage them because they don't have time to talk because you've set the right kind of goals where it's just a little bit of stretch, but they can catch them. Yeah. Whoa, so if you set the goal, let's say that the same analogy, you set the goal, at the, you set the goal too little. Like, let's say, well, let me ask you a question. If I give you 20 hours of work and I give you 40 hours to do it, when are you going to (laughs) finish? Isn't that surprising? So good to know everyone else thinks the same way. If the teacher gives you a week to do your homework, what day are you going to do it? The day before, of course. Why should you waste all this time doing a good job? (laughs) Yeah, and you just articulated actually how most of us live. Let's face it, you know, I have the same issues, actually. I... I've written 13 books I don't think I've ever finished. I have never finished a book that I didn't have a publishing deadline. That publishing deadline is that bus for me. And the publisher goes, and and if we had our own publishing company, I don't think I'd ever finish a book because I'd probably be in charge of the company. (laughs) So my team, they all want to start a publishing company. I'm like, I'm thinking about me. I'm like, I don't think I'd finish a book. I'd just say, oh, I'll just change my own date. But the fact that an outside person goes, Chris, you need to finish this book. How many understand that creates urgency? So, so if I give you a 20-hour job, and I give you 40 hours to do it, what hour are you going to do it? About 38 to 40, right? If I give you a 30-hour job, and give you 40 hours to do it, when are you going to do it? 40 hours. So, if I give you a 10-hour job, and I give you 40 hours to do it, when are you going to finish? 40 hours. If I give you a 41-hour job, and I give you 40 hours to do it, are you going to finish it? You are going to finish it. But you are not going to have time to do much else. If I give you a 60-hour job, and I give you 40 hours to do it, are you going to finish it? No. Is that, are you going to be motivated if I give you a 60-hour job and give you 40 hours to do it? Or is it going to make you try harder? Yeah. No. You know what? It's going to make you give up before you start. Yeah. I hope you're getting this. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Setting goals is the key to actually motivating a culture. I teach all of my team. I have a new team around me right now, fairly new, been a couple, three years with me, around me, and now they, they all know, because I actually sat down doing this with my own team. And I say, so when they go, hey, we need to get such, such done, I go, when, who, where, how, and why. Fill in the blanks, but I need to know when we're going to get this done. And they go, oh, we don't have to have this done for two weeks. I said, if you tell the team that's working for you two weeks, they'll finish it in two weeks. So create urgency. Have goals that help urgency. Did you hear what I just said? If you want to create a culture where people are motivated, then you want to have goals that people have to stretch to meet, but not goals that break them. If you have a culture where people stand around talking a lot, And it's a production-based culture. It's not pastoring people. I would say you don't know how to set goals. Okay. Good point, Chris. Steps. Steps. I think we already did steps pretty well. I never used this illustration together, but I think it works great. Steps are the daily process. The daily, like what? The 10-yard line. I'm not going to belabor this. Like The only part I want to tell you about steps is if you don't connect your steps to ultimately your mission in life, you'll probably suffer from discouragement and depression. You have to let the 10-yard line we just made. Some of you are making 10-yard lines by accident. You're so great. But because you're not envisioning it, because you don't actually know you just made progress by accident, In other words, you don't know that you just God just gave you favor and you just made you know you just kicked a field goal. You don't even know it because you're like we didn't win the Super Bowl yet. You kicked a field goal. You scored. It's awesome. Everybody who understands how to get things done is celebrating. You're on your way to you know you're you're you know you're on the way to winning the Super Bowl. You kicked a field goal. (laughs) Okay, be laboring. I can see it in your eyes. You're bored. I know, I'm right. You, know, you guys are just, all the pastors are like, oh, he feels so bad. And I actually say things just to get your attention. Because I, I, I like people who feel sorry for me. I have a victim mentality. The world's been so hard on me. Okay, I told you we're going to finish this today. You got 18 minutes. The last one is reward. 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 I want to give you a few scriptures for it. First Timothy eight, I'm sorry. First Timothy 5:18. If you can find First Timothy 8, that's awesome. First <laughs> Timothy 5:18. For the scripture says, "You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the labor is worthy of his wages." Hebrews chapter 11 verse six says, "Without faith, it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he's the rewarder of those who seek him." Okay. How do we get things done? Got to set goals, but we need to reward people for what we want. Write this down. This is going to sound super simple, but I want to tell you when I explain it to you, it's going to be incredibly profound. Reward what you want. Reward what you want. Okay. So rewards can come different ways. Um, here, the, the ox is getting rewarded because as he threshes, as he as he's he's plowing. As he's plowing, the, the farmer lets him eat. He's being rewarded. He's moving forward. In other words, he has, it's the carrot. The oxen has the carrot. The carrot is he gets, to, he gets to eat what he's threshing. Does that make sense? So reward what you want. I can't tell you how many cultures I've been in that they actually reward the thing they don't want. If you don't want it, don't reward it. <laughs> Don't bonus people who are doing the wrong thing. It sends them the wrong message. Okay, let's see. How do I... No, I'm just. it's not your fault. I'm just trying to put it in an example. If Johnny spends too much talking, and I think, maybe if I just gave Johnny a bonus, he would pay attention to his work. No, no, no. You just told Johnny you love all his talking. You're trying to be a nice guy. You're like, I want Johnny Love's job. He's not, he's, not, he's not working. Maybe if I pay him more, he'll work harder. No, no. You just, you just validate it that he's, what he's doing is okay. <laughs> like, figure out what you want and reward what you want. Okay? Um, reward's really important. I, uh, <laughs> when, I was, when I was in 76 Station, we had a pump island. Now, some of the young people will not remember this. You used to not be able to get out of your car. No, you used to be, not have to get out of your car and pump your own gas. And there used to be a full service and self-service. Well, when I was young, there was only full service, and nobody pumped their own gas. And then maybe in the first, maybe I was 20, and we ended up having a full-service island and a self-service island. So you could pull up to the self-service island. You had to do what you do now, get out, pump your own gas, da 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 or you could pull up the full service island and someone pumped your gas for you, checked your, under your hood, checked your tires, and did all that. And uh, I owned a service station. I ran a service station for probably 15 years. I owned one for nine, 76 station. And most of the guys who worked on the islands, there was a very, you know, it was a very entry-level job. And most of the guys were high school kids at night and college kids during the day. They're guys that, you know, were just, yeah, not, not a high-paying job. And, um, and what you used to do is we made no money on gasoline. We, we made about 10 cents a gallon, and it cost us about 15 to, to actually pump it because we had to have people out there. And the way you made money in the days I owned a service station is you sold things. Now, let me be clear what I mean by selling something. I mean you lift up the hood, and in those days... You needed oil change about every 4,000 miles. You needed to change your belts about every 15. I mean, you actually, you actually had to have maintenance. It wasn't like the cars we drive now, like you close the hood and you open it with the tow truck. It wasn't anything like that. It was like, if you didn't check the oil, the oil was low. And so when I say sell things, uh, and tires, you know, uh, the tires on the cars, I, you know, like if you got 10,000 miles out of a tire, that was a good tire. It's like, I know, this all sounds like a dinosaurs, right? But this is how it works. So you got gasoline. You checked your oil every time. You got gasoline. You checked your tires every time. You checked your fan belts. Just things wore out. You're living. In, when people say things are getting worse and worse, I'm like, no, no, things are actually getting better. So I have these young guys, and I the, and I would give them a, um, I would give them a bonus. They would get uh, they would get money for everything they sold besides gasoline. So if they sold a fan belt. They got three bucks. Most cars had four fan belts, so they sold. If they needed fan belts changed, all they had to do is look at the fan belts, and the fan belts were cut, wore out, anything, to say, Mr. and Mr., Mrs. Customer, um, I think your fan belts need to be changed. Here's a flashlight, look at that. Oh, yeah, okay. And if we change the fan belts, they got three bucks per fan belt. Now, you gotta understand, three bucks is like 11 bucks or 12 bucks now. Significant amount of money. If they sold a tire, they got 10 bucks. Think 30. No, I'm sorry. They got, yes, they got five bucks for a tire. If they uh, put a quart of oil in, they got 50 cents. Every car, just about probably one out of every three cars needed oil. They got 50 cents. Think $3. Okay, just think. I mean, this is, if they got, if they sold an air filter, they got three bucks. Sold, there's nothing selling about it. You look at the air filter, if it's clogged, (laughs) that's all we're talking about. We're not talking about like doing a sales pitch. We're just saying you need an air filter. That's it. Got me? So, I get my guys all together, and I got, I got four island guys. I, my 76, uh, first day of 76, they've never been bonus. They never got a commission for anything. I get all my guys together, they go, How'd you guys like to make 40 bucks a day? Think, 300, think, think 120 bucks a day. You're a kid. You're going to be here anyway. How'd you like to make $120 extra a day plus your wage? Oh, yeah, that's great. <laughs> okay. I want all of you here Saturday, I'm going to show you how to make a $120 bonus every day. Every day you work. Okay. They come on Saturday, I have all there. I said, I work the pump island, you watch. I go out there, I work the pump island the entire day for eight hours, they sit and watch. I sell hundreds of dollars worth of stuff. Three sets of tires, five fan belt changes, 35 quarts of oil, you know, I'm, I, wiper blades, they get uh, two bucks for every wiper blade. I mean, like I'm like, I mean, if they would have done that, they would have made $400 a day. I go, did that seem hard? They're like, no. I go, that's all I need you to do. Oh, yeah, we are got to make a million dollars. <laughs> day one, guess how much they sold? Guess what? Take yes, anybody. All together, all four of them, day one. How much they sell? Zero. Not a dollar. Now... They did pour three quarts of oil in that the customer asked for. So nothing. That went on for a week. In a week, they sold about $150 worth of stuff total. I sold about $3,000 worth of stuff on Saturday with them watching, just to give you contrast. So I'm like, okay, gosh, what's happening? So I start thinking about it, and I think, okay, here's the problem. The Lord's talking to me. When you're a kid... And you're going to get, you're going to do something today, and you're not going to get paid for it for a month because they get paid once a month for the commission. How motivated are you? Not at all. Like, When are you living? What are you living for? Today. today. So I change the commission program, and I go, hey guys, I take them out again. I I spend two hours with them. I go, you guys watch. I'll do this. You see that? Whoa, it's not magic. See, it's very, it happens. That's all we're doing. We're looking for bald tires. We're looking like only obvious stuff. Was there anything hard? Did I do anything hard? Did I turn my personality on? Did I charm anybody? No, all I did is, ma'am, I'm sorry, you have a, flat, you have a tire that's bald. Would you like us to do something about That's it. So I take them out, do it again. I change the program so they get paid once a week. Every Friday, they get their commission with their paycheck. Guess how many they sold the next month? Zero. They sold nothing. $150 for the month. All four of them. Together. Collectively. I get them all together again, and I'm thinking, and the Lord says to me, your vision, the reward is too, the vision is great, but the reward is too far. I said, it's a week. So I take them, I get them all together, I spend an hour with them on the, on the island, just to let them know it's still possible. I sell like $500 worth of stuff, while they watch. Simple, right? Oh, yeah i changed change the commission program so that they get paid every night before they go home. How much do they sell? Nothing. Not a freaking thing. I go home, my wife is talking me down. Because I go back that night at nine to see what they sold. I was so excited. They chose nothing. They just sold a pair of wiper blades. Someone probably asked for it in three quarts of oil. And Kathy's like, they're kids, you know. Think about when you were a kid. When I was a kid, I was making money. I was collecting bottles. I was... (laughs) And and while I was complaining, the Lord said, immediate gratification. This word, immediate gratification. I went to work the next day. Kathy was... I said, I'm going to... I said, I'm gonna do something crazy. She said, What are you gonna do? I said, when they sell the thing, they're gonna take the cash out of the cash box. She said, That's crazy. Don't do that. I said, No, I'm gonna do it. They put in a slip, they write two bucks, and they put the cat they take the cash out of the cash box. She's like, oh, she was really upset with me because she said, No, I think that's unorthodox. Next day, I get them all together. I go on the island, work an hour. <laughs> I said, when you sell something, you can take the cash. If you sell a tire, you can take the $5 out of the cash box and put in one tire, Mrs. Jones. If you sell fan belt, whatever, cord oil, you take the money out of the box immediately. You know how much I sold? Hundreds of dollars. Hundreds of dollars. Within two months, I had six mechanics, cars lined up. I ended up having to rent the parking lot next door from from my... from a. From a guy who owns a house next door, I rent his backyard. I have cars lined up on both sides of of the street. My competitor is complaining because he has no place to put a customer's car. About six months later, my competitor, who's also my friend, he's a believer, owns a Chevron station, I mean, I got cars everywhere. I can't keep enough guys fixing cars. I'm the top tire sales for Union Oil in California. I'm in Weaverville. Larry, my next door neighbor who owns the Chevron station, comes over and he's like, dude, um, how, how do you get all this work? I said, oh, my guys get commission. He goes, "Oh, well, I, I started giving my guys commission. I heard you were like a year ago. I give my guys commission. I said, yeah, you guys don't sell anything, right?
2: He said, Oh, no, I don't sell anything.
1: <laughs> I said, Larry, stand here and watch my guys. He stands on there and my guys, you know, I think they sold a set of tires while we stand there. My guy's having this little tire, set of tires in six months. I'm like, I know. So how'd you do it? I said, just pay him commission. I never did tell him. <laughs> See, if the reward isn't what somebody wants, it's not going to motivate him. If you have young people, really young people, especially like, you know, my grandkids' age, they're all in high school. They're not even thinking about tomorrow, man. They're not even thinking about when they're off the shift. They're thinking about right now. What am I going to do that's going to affect me right now? And when I connected to the way their hunger worked, I did that for nine years. I started four other businesses out of that business. You know why? Because my guys had instant gratification and I rewarded their instant gratification. And I had more work than I could do. Reward is huge. Reward what you want. Now, are you guys bored? I have five minutes and I can probably finish this if you can stay with me. When I got my auto parts store, I had auto parts stores and I had so I had an auto parts store and I had three repair shops. And my all my mechanics made let's say 12 dollars an hour which you know in today's terms would be like 20 22 or 23 and they also got commission. They got commission for how many hours they worked compared to how many hours they charged. Let me just make it real simple. If they worked 10 hours if they worked 10 hours working on cars how many of those hours could we actually charge to a customer? In other words, if my mechanic walked down the auto parts store, he can't charge for that time, right? He, only gets, can, he can only charge a customer for when he's working on their car, right? You don't, want somebody, you don't want someone charging you for when they're taking lunch. You don't want someone charging you for when they're cleaning their toolbox. So I'm like, okay, so... And in the automotive business, there is a government control. It's government-controlled. It's called Bureau of Automotive Repair in, Cal, in the United States. And the Bureau of Automotive Repair tells you how many hours you can charge for each thing. So that you look it up in a book and you go, I have a water pump on a 19, you know, 95, whatever, Mitsubishi, and it's this motor, and it has this, these things on it, and the government goes, you read that book, and you charge what we tell you you should charge. You with me? Okay, so you can take all day, but you can only charge that by law. So I worked it out so that my guys, so when I first started doing this, I had no reward program. And my guys, and a 10-hour day, which they didn't work 10 hours, just making it simple, in a 10-hour day, they charge 2.7 hours out. Guess how many businesses can survive on that? In other words, I pay them 10 hours, but the customer only paid for 2.8 hours. You can't live like that. So I started giving the rewards. And, and I said, when you... When you charge 7 out of every 10 hours to the customer, if you charge 7 out of 10 hours, if you charge 70% of your time out, I will give you a $100 bonus. If you charge 80, I'll give you $200 bonus. If you charge 90%, I'll give you $300 bonus. And if you charge 100%, I will give you a $500 bonus. And if you all hit above 80% together, all seven of my mechanics, I will give you each $1,000 bonus on top of the bonus. Are you with me? Pretty good, right? Okay, now I open an auto parts store and I've learned, right? You reward what you want. So every other auto parts store in the world only pays hourly. I pay hourly plus incentive. So I say to all my guys, you're going to get an hourly wage, which is good, compatible, comparable to everyone else's, and I'm going to give you 2% of everything you sell. So if you sell $2,000 and $10,000 a month, which is average, you're going to get $200. So on and so forth. And... If you guys all sell this much, you're all going to get a $500 bonus. So if the, if the whole parts house sells these different goals, you will all get a bonus. Good, right? Everybody's happy, right? Well, the first thing I learned is that uh, it's, I only have two minutes to tell you the rest of the story. So I'll tell it to you so instead of doing it and dramatizing it those guys all sold pretty well. When I took their charts, how much they charged? No. When I took their commission and I put it on a chart so every day everyone could see what how much they'd sold for the day and how much they'd sold for the month total, when I put it on a wall where everyone can watch, the sales doubled. <laughs> doubled. You know how I learned it? I was I told all my guys, "Listen, when the phone rings, I need you to run to the phone because 80% of our, fo- our business was wholesale customers comes in on the phone. They could, I couldn't get them to run to the phone. They'd say, this is what they said, you don't pay us enough to run. Did I tell you this? Yeah. You don't pay us enough to run to the phone. So one day, after about a year of this, I went outside one day and I was driving home. Did I tell you this story? I was driving by the baseball field and all of my guys were on a baseball team in which they ran around the f- bases for free. It <laughs> wouldn't run from here to there for the phone, but they'd run around the bases for free. And the Lord said, if you figure out why they run around the bases for free, you'll figure out how to motivate your men. So I was already giving them commission, and that increased their sales. And I'm like, oh, and and finally, I'll just give you the fast story. The Lord said, significance. Why do they run around for free? Because they want to win. They want people to validate that they're good. When I made competition a part of the... In other words, I'm already rewarding them. Now I'm, giving, now I'm using competition. Right. And I'm saying, how about if I put on the wall who's winning? Yeah. When I first put... Because I had kept track of it forever. I'm like, hey, Kathy, print that chart and put it on the wall every day. She's like, okay. I put it on the wall first day. Guess what happens? The guy who's got the most sales for the month, he's what? Excited. The guy who has the lease sales, he wants the charts gone. I don't like people to know what I'm doing. It's no one else's business. Well, I'm the boss. I said it is. The funnest story I'll have to tell you tomorrow. Because I'm overtime. Do I have any control? No. Uh, 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 who's, who's, what are we doing next? Do I have five minutes or are we pressed for time? No, I'm not asking you. We have to quit. Okay, good. Stand up. Let me pray for you. I have you tomorrow. I'll get to dramatize it. It'll be more interesting. I'll draw some happy faces up here. Did you learn anything today? Okay. Let's put your hands out like this. Holy Spirit. Come on, come on, come on. Holy Spirit. Make me a world-class leader.
0: Amen. Amen. Thank
1: you. The vision of Bethel School Supernatural Ministry from its inception was that we would train up revivalists who with passion, purity, power, and a love for the presence of God would move into the four corners of the planet and would bring the kingdom everywhere they went. The atmosphere of the school in a very
2: practical sense is built around the presence. So an entire culture is lived out day after day with worship as a primary expression. Everything is connected to the presence.
1: One of the things I love about the school ministry, it's become a cultural center. We have people from over 50 countries that are involved in school ministry.
2: The strength is the fact that it's as many nations, it's many ages, it's many diverse cultures, that each learn to celebrate who the other person is.
1: It's a culture of of love and a culture of risk. You are a love not for what you do, but because of who you are and whose you are. If you want people to learn how to move in wonders and signs and miracles, they're going to make mistakes. We're there to coach you. We're there to ref you. We're there to grow you. It's
2: a required Experience. It's not just a point of theology. You can have all the right answers about miracles and never have seen one. You can have all the right answers on what integrity looks like, but yet be living immorally. So these things are really a big deal to us that they become practical, that they're lived out. They're measurable. The school ministry equips you for every dimension of life. People often come to our school because they want to see the miracles. I don't know anyone who stays for second and third year the miracles they all stay because of the culture because of the atmosphere they want to learn how to sustain how to maintain that which god has impacted their life and family with so that when they go back to wherever they can actually have a momentum i want to invite you to prayerfully consider bethel school supernatural ministry it's a lifelong journey to see the king glorified in every single part of culture and society join us where the things that were impossible now become normal.